Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 5 of Couch Potato Politics, and third episode of the Youth Activism Series. And on this episode of the podcast, I speak to my guest, Ransom Fox, about the importance of local government in the United States. This is a long one, folks, so feel free to lay on your couch and have a good time. Thank you so much for being on uh, Couch Potato. It's great to have you, Ransom. Well, thank you so much for hosting me. It's an honor and pleasure. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time now. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, let's uh, get right into it. Absolutely. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and your advocacy and your work in local government? And how did you originally get involved? Yeah, so I'm a current, um, I'm going to be a senior, even though it's my third year, I get to graduate early, thank God, from George Mason University. Um, I'm a public admin major and legal studies minor. Um, I started back in high school, my um, work with local government. I actually was in high school, I was president of our school's young Republicans, and I worked actually to create a joint committee for bipartisanship with the school's young Democrats. I was also the president of our school's Future Business Leaders of America, and we worked to do a fundraiser with our local Innova Hospital, and we got like a local Republican named Crystal Wright to come. So that kind of, I realized once you start putting the effort in, everything starts to just keep snowballing along, snowballing along. I also interned for our local city council um, my senior year of high school in the summer of that as well, and it really opened my eyes. Um, And then I went to college. I was a senator. Our school Senate is our school Senate government is huge. 40 senators, then about 30 people in in the executive branch, sometimes even more, depending on what the president wants, president, vice president. And then you have about like five Supreme Court justices. You got about pre-COVID times, $25,000 budget and a lot of influence lobbying with the local locals. There's a lot of a lot of stuff at play. Um, I went as a senator um, and I started off just kind of learning the ropes. And then when I came back, I actually went to study abroad in Greece, did some local stuff there, actually. Um, but we're going to keep it keep it in America. I came back and there's like committees, right? Like, you know, the right real Senate has committees. One of our committees is government and community relations. I was the vice chair of that. And then I became the chair of that committee. So what we did is we did a lot of local, state, and even federal lobbying. We also, what I did is I met with local businesses and got us deals um, for Mason students. So like one of the local big restaurants is 29 Diner. They do great philanthropy work. They feed, they fed 100,000 homeless people during the COVID crisis. And we got 20% discount if you show your ID now, just striking deals with people, stuff like that. I met with um, supervisors, people that discussed like what they want to see us do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also worked to build 160 lights around campus. Um, that really is kind of helped get it out there from the community. Um, and then I've met with our Mayor Meyer, Councilman Yee, and now I'm taking it to the private sector. We have, I'm funding my own organization called the Patriot Protection Association. We've actually fundraised, we haven't even been officially um, cleared yet by the school, but we've already been pledged $20,700, which we're really proud of, working with local institutions, businesses, and the Mason police to increase safety and transparency within our community and our school. We're looking at our camera systems are really broken, so we're looking to fix that or find supplemental ways to have security in a de-escalated way. We're also looking to um, partnering with my great friend, Rafaela Lucioni. She is amazing. She works with Mason UNICEF and the UN in Brazil. She's coming up and we're working. She has her own project where in Brazil, she fed um, a lot of food insecure individuals through giving out these 
um, food boxes of non-perishable food items. And she wants to work with us and we're helping her out or working together to do the same thing within Fairfax um, to help out uh, the food insecure within Fairfax County. And then we're also looking to do some other things like the sexual prevention drive with, within September and October, as we found out that's when a lot of it happens when it's freshman girls who come on the campus. Just advocacy work like that. It's all about just meeting people, going out of your way, because no one's going to go out of their way to come to you. You got to go out of your way to go to them and they'll be impressed. Meeting people, discussing, figuring out what's wrong, finding solutions and just getting the ball rolling and putting big energy in. So that's pretty much uh, quick, quick snapshot of the last three years, I would say, um, a lot more happened, but it's been, it's really exciting. It's, it's really fun. Awesome. And for people who don't know, where exactly are you based? Like where's George Mason oh, university? Yes. So we are about 20 minutes without traffic, but like an hour with traffic away <laughs> from Washington, DC, um, in Northern Virginia, where it is very, very cutthroat, very intense, very, it's, it's definitely draining and taxing around here. It's like DC minus all the fun perks, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, some ba- I usually just tell people right outside of Washington, DC, because we are right outside of Washington, DC, but it, Northern Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia, that's pretty much where we are, the precipice of it. How do you define patriotism? Because I heard you talking a bit about your agency and, you know, sometimes on, you know, the left wing kind of has a different view of it. And Sometimes Republicans have a different view of it. So I just want to hear how you would define it. Sure. So my personal definition of patriotism, I think it's um, one's love of their nation and of all the people that encompass said nation and what's doing what is best for your brothers and sisters within your nation above all else. And it's doing what's best for your nation, even if that means not supporting it, right? Patriotism, I see this a lot on like infographics, and I actually do agree with this. It's not blind support, right? It's doing what is best for your people and your nation, even if that means critiquing and changing. So that's how I would define patriotism in a small nutshell, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. How do you define local government? Well, you have a lot of textbook federalism definitions, a lot of laws, regulations. I think just to make it egregiously simple, I define local government as any group of people or a person that only has power over a small section of land and people. At the end of the day, through all the jargon and words, that's pretty much what it is. It's just a small group of people that have autonomy over a small section of land and constituents. Is it true that local governments are the places where the biggest impacts are made? So I would say it depends on what the issue is. But for the most part, I would say yes, because most of our issues are micro day to day things. Let's say it's your license plate got stolen or maybe you're facing a food insecurity issue that people 30 minutes away are not facing local government has the most power resources and access to fix your day-to-day issues way better than any state or national government can now when it comes to things like ta- like federal taxes or our safety from um domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism the national government of course has much greater impact than local government but those are more macro kind of all-encompassing issues when it comes to most of our issues are day-to-day stuff small things but they're not small to us they're nagging they can really cause a detriment to our prosperity and progress your local government is way more powerful than any state or federal government and that's why it is so important 
Uh, and do you feel like it, it, it kind of shows local government shows uh, the importance of people power and, and grassroots voting? Absolutely. And, and it shows what happens if there's a lack of success with that, because in my experience, local government, and I've heard this from a lot of people too, is a lot more closed off than national government. And there can be a lot more, how do I say, nefarious acts and, and self-interest within local government, the national, you wouldn't expect that because there's no spotlight on it. So mm -hmm. that's why the, the potential for grassroots involvement and, and energy to make change is so much higher on the local level. But presently, it's, it's, it's acted upon much less, which really needs to change. Because if you want to make the most change on you, your family and your friends, it's all about getting involved locally. Do you believe local government is effective in what it does? 110%. But that's only if you have the right people that are in power. But um, and what it does is that it manages the day-to-day -day issues, assuming you have good people in place. Yes. On paper. Yes. How does one get involved with their city's government and simple, like just helping out, you know, and, and making, making change they want to see? I just reach out. See, the good thing about local government is that unlike the president of the United States or a senator who is, a, is extremely busy, right? They're not going to respond to you unless you have connections. Local government, they're a lot more free and they also have a lot less people demanding their time. So all I did was email, email, show up, interview, boom, I'm sold. And there's other people that do it as well. There's different, like there's people, there's like a parks and recs department of the Fairfax city council that people intern in, et cetera, et cetera. All you have to do is reach out. A lot of these people, when they, people that work for the government, I'll admit it myself. I like attention. You know, these people like attention and, and they're missing some of this attention. So they love when you reach out. They love when you reach out, ask to help, ask to kind of be mentored and learn the ropes. Now, of course, it depends. If you're in New York City, that's a competitive big place, right? So it does depend on what your city government is like. But for the most part, just reaching out and saying, hey, I want to help. I want to intern. I want to be able to make a difference and learn the ropes is all you need to do. And it, you never know what door opens and you just keep pushing, keep finding a way and you'll, you'll land an opportunity. But it's as simple as reaching out, which a lot of people aren't even aware of. Should local governments have autonomy rights over federal policy and certain mandates? If the federal policy is a concurrent or a reserved power, then yes. If not, then no, or else you kind of have like an America circle, uh, excuse me, circle the Articles of Confederation, and that's just, it's going to crumble, decay, especially because back then we were like a very homogeneous nation. Now we are so ideologically diverse that it, we will just crumble and fall apart. But if it is not concurrent or reserved, then I believe yes. And for those who don't know, can you go into a little bit more depth about reserved and concurrent? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So like reserved powers are all powers that are not specifically delegated to the federal government and they're reserved or saved for the state governments. So these are like establishing schools, establishing local governments and police powers. And there's the same kind of um, same kind of levels when it comes to uh, localities having reserved powers from states. Delegated powers are those that are specific to the federal governments. Um, these include uh, regulation of interstate and international trade currency, war, you know, the big stuff. Those are the only federal government can do. You can't have Virginia declare war on Greece, right? That would make no sense. But anything not delegated to the federal government, 
is for the states and local and the states and local kind of have the same thing going on and concurrent is stuff that happens at the same time it's what they the federal state and local share simultaneously that's why you have different tax rates for localities states and federal etc and etc so that's pretty much the difference if that if that makes sense that does uh, thank you very much mm-hmm. why can local government be so efficient compared to other parts of government because it's a lot more condensed and a lot easier to have access. At the end of the day, whoever is in the White House, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, George Washington, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, they're not going to know who you are. They're not going to know who I am. They're not going to know our issues. And they're not going to understand our issues. We, The beauty of America is that we are such a diverse place in so many different ways that it's really hard to make. And we're so large. We are so large. We're pretty much like if Europe was one nation. It is so hard to have one blanket kind of idea or statement across all these different swaths of people. But your local government, it breaks us down. Of course, you break down to your local sex where they understand your issues. They understand what's going on for you specifically. They probably know your name if you reach out to them. They probably know who you are and they have the means to have the access to fix your issues and your problems at the most efficient level. You know, the president only comes down to visit your city when something bad's happening. You don't want the president coming. That's when there's a hurricane or or a terrible shooting or something, but your mayor's there all the time and they know exactly what's going on and they have the means to fix it. And that's why I believe local government is so much more efficient because it is built and was founded upon to be much more grassroots. It's not even that people at the top don't care. I, I, I'm assuming a lot of people do care. They want to help out. But their focus is on the geopolitical sphere, the much bigger things. You break it down. You have your local uh, local um, boards and, and, and mayors and anything else that, that they can help you out. How has your government handled the COVID-19 pandemic? And in your opinion, was it done well or would you have done it differently? Hindsight's 2020. I always like to say, and I know a lot of people say, oh, we need to stay more shut down and we need to open up more. A lot of people think people act nefariously. And while there are some people who I, I, I would think are a little hypocritical in what their policies are and how they're acting, I would say that like, I don't believe that our mayor or my, I live in Fairfax County, but I work with the city because it's really close. The county's really large. So like our board, for instance, I don't believe that they were acting out of some spite or some conspiracy. It's just no one really knew what was going on. So the safer thing to do was to shut down, right? You'd rather shut down than stay too open. However, everything has, everything is is gray, right? Everything is good and bad. And there's a lot of local businesses that are never going to open up again. A lot of small businesses that are shut down, family-owned businesses. Like these are people's livelihoods, right? Businesses, you invest so much, so much time, money, effort, and they're gone just like that. They're gone. They have no help and they, there's nowhere to go and they're not going to come back up again, sadly. And our school system has been closed for uh, almost a year and a half now. And a lot of these students are falling behind. A lot of these students are, you know, they're facing a lot of issues at home. You have alcoholism rates rising. You have drug abuse rates rising. You have other negative stats rising. So I, I wish if I were, now if I was say dictator of Fairfax, because of course it's not whatever I say, it's whatever everyone else says. I would have opened up six months ago, right? Now I, it's kind of hard because they kind of do whatever the state says. So I guess we're, we're being really hypothetical because it's more whatever Governor Ralph Northam says. We, you kind of have to follow Richmond, Virginia, how it works actually. Municipalities don't have that much power. It's mostly you lobby to the state and they pretty much grant you your wishes. So I really couldn't do much different, but 
assuming I could, I would have opened up safely and, and more securely a little earlier to save these businesses and to open up our schools. But that is just as 2020, you know, 2020. And I think 2020 um, hindsight, I don't think it, I would give it like a B grade. And that's pretty good. Most governments are like an F or something. So I think they handled it decently well, putting everything in context. Um, do you support abolishing policing area and replacing it with community-based welfare and other social programs? I do not, but I do. Um, this is an interesting take because in my opinion, to make police more progressive, you need more funding. Case in point, our school's police department has some of the top conflict and intervention training in the greater East Coast area from additional funding. And we are talking to the chief. He showed us a video um, it was about a couple months ago, there was a Mason student on meth with a knife wielding it around at fellow students and at the police. Now, the police are trained in this. So instead of showing up guns ablazing, which could have ended very poorly for a lot of people, they calmed the guy down. They got him safely to a hospital and no one was hurt. But that took more funding to get that top tier training. Mm -hmm. So if we implemented something like conflict intervention training within the Fairfax County Police Department and were more transparent, which cost more money to be more transparent, to have updated websites and seminars, et cetera, I feel like that would go a lot more. I also say being a policeman or woman is one of the hardest occupations in America. They're the second most likely job to commit suicide, unfortunately, besides an army veteran. And our veterans aren't taken care of as well. You put a lot of eggs in their basket and you have a lot of people that want them to be dead. They unfairly label um, a policeman or woman because of the actions of others or other departments. Are there bad departments? Yes. I think, you know, there are bad departments. You can look at the history of the NYPD or LAPD. But this a random cop in Fairfax, I don't think is malicious or out to get people, but people think they are. So you add that stress on top of massive PTSD. And when you have to make split second reactions, bad stuff happens, poor stuff happens. So I'm for more funding, but for it not to be diverted towards, you know, more riot gear, or bigger guns or anything like that. But let's get that funding towards better you know, de-escalation training, more conflict intervention training, more therapy for the police. Also, I'm down for let's let's I see what you're saying with community-based welfare and social programs. I'm for adding different units to the police that are based on sexual assault, like the Mason police has, or based on domestic abuse or drug abuse. But that takes more funding to the less because community police, especially where I live, look, I if someone came up to me and like they were, you know, they had there's an open open gunmen carrying around, I, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know what to do. I would have no clue what to do. And if, if, let's say you walked in on some horrific sexual crime happening, it'd be hard. You wouldn't know what to do. So at least in my community, I would not feel like community policing is the best. I would feel like more funding, but diverting that funds towards progressive and, and future optimistic programs and, and, and trainings would be the best way to have a safer community, a more um, conservative, not conservative in the in the less aggressive stance police force and a more and a more bridges between the police and, and the community because they there's trust implemented again and there's more transparency and they realize that you know these people they're getting the training they need because a lot of times the cops they're 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 just they're just the they're just the pawns right they're the foot soldiers that are given like no training not a lot and and it's kind of you know they're kind of just put there and it's usually it's at top that's what happens you got to fix the top so i really feel like doing that would be the best for the fairfax community it sounds different because a lot of people would think progressive is a abolishing the police, but I think more funding, if done correctly, is a way to have a more progressive police. 
And one of the ideas of, you know, the, the social community welfare was to take some of that weight off the police. So they didn't have mm -hmm. a bunch of that extra mm -hmm. baggage on their, their supposed baggage on their shoulders. And they weren't responding to these certain incidents that was, that was meant for the social programs. Like that person who, or, or like you said, the de-escalated situation that that was the idea around these social programs. So they were a separate entity. They were, they were not connected to the police force because of their bad uh the, their bad look already you know so it, it took away from the police and basically created a community-based social force yeah but that could that could go wrong there could be random people that have no idea what to do or they're bad at least i would say this i would be fine if that was happening if it was if the police and said, as I said, said, let's say different sectors of the police, different sections were under one centralized authority and leader. Because if, if there's if there's community police forces, you're saying in a police, there could be a lot of who territory war, who goes to what, you know, there could be a lot of like you kind of see that now. If you look at like right wing extremism, like vigilante groups, there's a lot of like between them, and the police, there's a lot of strife, a lot of well, who gets what? Who helps out with what? There's a lot of confusion and you got to make split decisions like that. So I'm, I, as I said, I'm for, I like the ideas of what you're saying are correct. I'm just for implementing that into the police system to have a centralized authority and to have kind of a, a set structure and not just kind of letting everyone go loose willy nilly. Cause that could, that could be inefficient and also could be ineffective and lead to other errors as well. If that makes sense. So how do we decrease the amount of police violence because i know there's a lot of that like towards mm -hmm. civilians and how, how do we take that because they're in those split second decisions mm -hmm. sometimes they pull the gun so taking the gun out of their hands how do, what would you say to people who want to just pull guns all together and say no you can't have these these weapons of of mass destruction per se you're talking about police guns on the police men and women yes mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with 538 by Nate Silver. I love that website all the time. De-escalation works so well. De-escalation works so well. So I would, I'm in favor of having um, on most crimes, having the police be de-escalated. That means no massive weapons or no weapons at all. Maybe a small handgun if necessary, but like no gear, anything just showing up and helping out besides having like, you know, a radio, something like that to call people in, not pulling up guns and blazing. You know what I'm saying? Um, because then that freaks everyone out and it's unfair to the police person as well. Who's like, oh man, this person, I'm going to whip out a gun at me because the person sees the person all dressed up. They get scared. The cops like the person. And they also, as I said, they probably have PTSD and trauma. So if you get therapy for the policemen or women, if you have the instituted as a separate, separate sect into the police program, that could help out a lot too, because instead of these um, policemen and women just bottling it all up and, you know, unfortunately getting triggered and then just someone loses a life. If you have them talk to more therapy and open up, I, could, I think that could help out as well. I feel like therapy is a very powerful tool. Um, now, in some instances, you need to have arms. If there's, a, if there's an open shooter or if there's someone going around like committing in the open sexual assault against women, you or if there's someone who's like, let's say there's someone who's child trafficking and they're in the city and they're like loaded up, you have to pull up with weapons. Mm -hmm. But there should be structured kind of levels like tier three crimes small crimes there's a kid doing graffiti you know you don't need to show up with the weapon right um you don't need to i mean maybe as i said maybe a small handgun or a knife because you don't know maybe the kid could be a loose cannon and they shoot you you don't want you don't want any lives lost 
but you don't need to pull up full out, you know, gear, full out vests, anything like that. If there's an active school shooter, you need as many resources as possible on that. So I think making it more clear because and making it, um, this is why tying this all back to local government, this is why I like local government, making it more applicable to your situation, whatever your community's crime is. If your community is a high murder rate of criminals, you got to be more strapped up. If your community is much more laid back and it's much more petty crimes or like, you know, stuff like that, then you realize your police forces need as much resources that are devoted towards weaponry, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I like the idea of differing up each locality police force in terms of what it needs. However, I would like standardizing the conflict intervention training and the therapy for the police and some of the other stuff we talked about, but that's, that's, that makes sense. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Would you support measures to make all education free in your district? And if not, why do you think education shouldn't be a uh, right, right off the bat? So we have that besides college and where I live in my city and county, we have free um, kindergarten through, um, through high school, through 12th grade. We have free K through 12. Um, are there even some like free preschool and, and pre-k options um they're not everywhere right you have to make a little more of a drive but there are available so in terms of that that i don't know does really apply to where i live in terms of college are, is that is that yeah. yeah so so more about um kind of free college and the discussion mm-hmm. around higher education being mm-hmm. not such a burden to so many people so how i would this is actually i don't know if you're familiar with senator mark warner is this is his proposed plan I would, and I, it really spoke to me. And um, after listening to people like Andrew Yang that spoke to me as well, I would, for college, no, I would not make it free for two reasons. Number one, you would, the tax increases to make that possible, especially if it's done locally, not federally. By the time you get out of college, you'd be strapped in the marginally non different I mean, it could be different, but in terms of the actual effect, it would be no marginal difference between the massive student debts we are having, having now. Um, the tax increases would be so high that when you get out, it would be kind of the same scenario as if, you were in student debts. Number two, it definitely decreases the value of the degree. So now you pretty much have a worthless, an even more worthless piece of paper because undergrad degrees are already becoming, you know, they're already becoming pretty worthless. You would have a more um, worthless piece of paper and you'd have to, and then probably grad schools would realize this, upcharge the price and you'd be in the same situation. So what I would propose is free community college because community college is a great option that is a little bit expensive. Honestly, I go to George Mason. I live at home. That's fine. That's the only college I could go to because of money. It was my last choice, but we made the decision to stay at home. There's a great community college called Nova, one of the top in the nation, that is more expensive than if you stayed at home and went to Mason. That makes no sense because the quality of education is lower than Mason. If you, because community college is not going to be for everybody, it's only for those who need it. If you make that free, two-year college free, as kind of a bridgeway into, into undergrad, I feel like that would be much more successful in allowing people to be able to save up some money to like make the burden of undergraduate less and also ensure that they're not blowing all this money on community college, which is really has no purpose other than to be a bridge to an undergrad. So that's what I would propose to be the most pragmatic way is to make community college free and then to have college be the same, but that could do something with the prices as well. That could be for the better. And then everything else, um, all the other public education where I live is free. So that, that would be what I would do. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the um, four-year degree uh, mm-hmm. 
being free. If those were funded by tax increases on the top 1%, would mm-hmm. you still say the same thing? Like you would still go into debt after college and because of taxes? The top 1% already pays a lot of taxes. Um, if you look at, if you look what's happening now, I would say is that everything in the economy has a ripple effect. You know, everything has one, one thing felt by the 1% ends up always circling around being felt by everyone else. Same thing with the bottom. Everything that happens to those at the middle class, lower class gets felt by the top. So in one way or another, there would be an, uh, a really negative effect on us, the students, um, if there if there was a tax increase to pay for college. And if we're talking nationwide, um, that would be it would be a lot of taxes that would have to be taken by the 1% increase. And they would probably, first off, probably they wouldn't like it. They'd move their money overseas or they'd go somewhere else. And it'd just be this whole type of, it would just be a whole calamity that I feel like could be mitigated if you make community college free and you still have undergrad um, have some calls because then during that time with some other stuff, like I'm definitely down for it. I, I won't spoil it. I, I, I believe I say it later on, but you'll see there's some other assistance that you can give people as well that will allow them to, by the time they reach undergrad to be able to only accumulate some debt, but not too much. Also, just, this is how I feel nationwide. I really feel like we should make a bigger focus on trade school and on, and on, and, and stuff like that, because we have our blue collar workforces crumbling from the bottom up. And that's really going to hurt our nation. And we really need to incentivize trade school because you can make a lot of money while saving a lot of money while doing really cool, fun things. But that's, that's something that a little off track, but if, if you make community college free with some other assistance um, that I, I, I probably will touch on later, I feel like that would be the most pragmatic way to go. Should the federal government have more control over local governments and be forced to follow laws and policies enacted by Congress? I would leave it how it's founded. So like, as we discussed earlier, what the enumerated powers are, right? International trade, coinage and currency, war, maintenance of armed forces, postal system, copyrights, and power to enter in treaties. Those, the states and local governments should absolutely follow. You don't want Florida to make its own currency. You don't want Texas declaring war on Canada. You know, I could go on and on. But for everything else, as we said earlier, America is so beautiful because we are so diverse and different all across. It's so impossible to make one size fits all decision in DC that will have great effects on everybody. That's why I think we should keep it as intended and have everything else be up to the state and local governments. I even think local governments should have more power from the state, at least in Virginia. They really don't. It's really all up to Richmond and Richmond isn't, uh, isn't doing the best job as of now. How do you hold your politicians accountable other than voting for the opposite party in the election? So great answer. Um, more people would show up to our student meetings, student senate meetings, excuse me, than would city council meetings. These people like attention. I like attention. I was the person that was a school official. If you show up to their meetings, they will like you and they will listen to you. Even if you disagree, these people, they're bored because they're not getting the attention they want. Show up to your local meetings. There's always a time where you can talk about anything you want. And then there's obviously times where you can sign up and present or lobby. 
you are going to have a good chance of being able to lobby your local officials without having to be some big corporate entity that spends millions of dollars every year. Instead of, you know, like those big lobbyists in DC, you can do that for free. You can do that for free and have more of an impact with your local government. Show up to your local meetings. Here's the thing. They're not the most exciting. They're pretty long. They're pretty boring. Reading regulations and stuff like that is not the sexiest thing in the world. You're not going to have some tabloid White House story or some, you know, fun viral moment in Congress. It's going to be boring stuff, but that's how you make real change. And that's what separates people who really grind to the top and don't because those people stick through it. And that's why they're in the position that they are. You can lobby for free by showing up to your local meetings. Also, fun fact, fun fact, a lot of people don't vote or run for local office. Depending on where you live, as I said, New York's big cities being the exception, right? I would even say my city, there's a, there's a good amount of money in the elections, but for other like towns and stuff, you could run for office. You could start a, a local voting. Um, you could start like a local voting group that, that only donates or a, a local PAC that only donates or, or supports specific candidates. You can do all those things pretty easily, which you can't do nationally, but you have more power locally. Social media, bringing attention to it. Not a lot of press covers local stuff, right? Unless it's a scandal. Our mayor in like 2012, he they found they busted him selling meth in a gay sex ring by an undercover cop who was harassed by him. Yes, yes, he still has a bench right in the city. He, I don't know how he got out. He's very privileged. He just lives. He's just chilling in the next county over right now. That's the only thing our media covers. They don't cover all the bylaws going on. But social media is a powerful tool. If he's correctly, you can spread awareness on that. As I said, too, meeting with the officials, they have a lot of office hours where they do a lot of work, but there are some times where they're free and you can just have a one on one discussion with them. Very fruitful, very insightful. So just and all of it's out there. All of our meetings for the Fairfax City are played on um, local TV and they're live streamed on record forever online. Same with meeting information. There's so many cool things. There's so many different things. And people don't really know about it. So that's why we like we love technology. You can easily look it up, bring some friends, sit through it, talk, boom. Maybe they won't take you seriously at first, but the more you go and the more people look at you and realize that you're legit, you will become one of the top lobbyists in your local government. How do we make legislation more accessible to the average person? Because I know, like you said earlier, how you know, cumbersome it is to go through all these regulations and documents. So how do we make it more accessible for these people? Like, do we need people like, you know, nonpartisan organization laying out mm -hmm. the facts of this, this piece of legislation or this bill or whatever it may be? How do you think we can do that? Definitely like the ideas. That's a really great point because it is boring, right? It's hard to get a quick summary. It's any legislation, honestly, that's the same thing on Capitol Hill. Like the stuff is like crazy that 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 goes through. Um, so I would say because not a lot of people focus on local government. If you're interested in that stuff, you or you have a friend that's interested, just start an organization that looks through. Um, maybe you can create some system where you can pluck keywords, get a summary, get who voted for what, and get what's going to do for you. Short, simple, sweet. Spread it out on your organization because it's all out there. It is all online. Every piece of legislation, national, state, and local is all online at 24-7, but it is hard to, and a lot of times when it's pushed through the news too, it's misconstrued, right? They, they, it only, they only say one side of it. So I guess that would be, that's a great idea actually, is to just create a nonpartisan kind of, not really fact checker, more kind of like a simplified, like you just kind of make it easier to read, digest the legislation and push it out there for more people to know. 
It's going to be hard though, because it's going to be really hard to keep it non-biased. So you got to make sure that you're going in there to be purely objective. And because a lot of people that push legislation and fill out are subjective, you got to go in and try to try to stay true to true to your goal as possible. If your goal is to stay objective. If you're in a higher position in your town, how would you improve education and expand access to uh, college? We, so where I live, the graduation rate is extremely high. So that's really not an issue in terms of going to college. Almost everybody does. There's only like a couple percent that doesn't. And those people either go to the military or they go to um, trade school. There's not a lot of the dropout rate. So I actually live in one of the top education systems in America, but it's starting to go on the decline. No fault of its own. Everything reaches its peak and it falls. A lot of families moved here because our education system was great. But now they've become so good, they're getting bored and they're starting to become political and try to experiment a little. And now what's happening is the next county over, Loudoun County, has a better education system. Um, so if you like, I can go into the original because because college, like the access where I live is very well. Um, maybe not your top choice. Right. Because like George Mason is not my top choice, but I still got into college. I'm still very grateful. Like <sighs> Fairfax County, man, they're kind of they're becoming bored. And they're becoming very political. Um, they're getting rid of advanced diplomas, which is um, a, lot, a lot of people like. Um, there's a, one of the top prep high schools in America, Thomas Jefferson High School. I'm the favorite TJ. These kids go to Yale, Oxford, Harvard. It's very near where I live. And now, instead of taking people based on marriage, they're doing a lottery system. And that's really upsetting kids because I grew up with kids that in the summer, even though they got all A's, they would go to summer school all day, every day because they wanted to get in this damn high school. And now they're doing all this work for pretty much nothing. Um, There's a radical change in what students learn. There's shutting down of open thoughts. My sister, she was she made a TikTok with a poster of a certain political candidate and our address got leaked. She was threatened to be lynched and beat up and our school did nothing. I had one of my friends who was founder of the Young Republicans at uh, on my high school. She's blonde and blue eyes and she was debating with her history teacher about she supported Donald Trump and the teachers called her a Nazi. Straight up called her a Nazi. Nothing happened. We had uh, we have a lot of a bad track record of teachers um, getting bored, and we had a teacher who was caught by a janitor having sexual intercourse with a minor student that was going on for a long time and would not have been disclosed unless the janitor walked in. I even had an experience, you know, just a little trigger warning. I, I didn't know this teacher was anything wrong with me, I, but I, like she would call me Hugh Hefner because of the way I dressed. One time my tag was sticking up, she like went behind me and put it down. She would um. She took a picture of me because I was voted most likely to be president. She was like, why are you looking like a porn star right now? These are inappropriate things. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that. I was also afraid because of the environment, the echo chamber I'm in. As a male, I would be laughed at for that. I'd be like, oh, you're a man. You're privileged. You, you can't experience these things. And this is all going on instead of just trying to focus on education, which is what Fairfax County used to do, which is why they're a great school system. That's what Loudoun County is doing right now. Now, I get it. They're at the top. They were the best. So when you're at the best, you get bored. But we need to get that hunger back in and focus purely on educating our students the best and having the truth. When I mean truth, I mean 
not being some um, super far left or super far right, but taking things in the middle, opening ideas and allowing people to learn how to learn and hear different perspectives. And, and once again, learn how to learn, not being forced one way or the other. There are both sides in my school where we have teachers on the right and the left that would only teach their viewpoint. And it's not okay. You should have, you should have open discussion and, and care and, and be able to be carefree in your discourse. And I feel like Fairfax County Public Schools is losing their hunger. And that's why we need to get back to the basics, get back to the simple roots and focus on purely getting a good education for our students, because that's what Loudoun County is doing. And that's why they're kicking our ass. So I think just going back to the basics is what I would do if I were in charge. I also, this is an idea, a lot of private schools. So I, um, I've mixed views on private schools, but the private schools where I live are either very niche, which is okay. You know, it's good to have those options, but they're not for everybody or they're egregiously expensive, or they're not about academics. They're just kind of like a name, if that makes sense, where like the same families go. So I would kind of do like a pseudo public private thing and kickstart slash fund a charter slash private school purely focused on education to get it started to, to doubt and, and subsidize it to give academic and financial um, scholarships to students so that they have more options to give competition to the public schools. Because right now the private schools do a really bad job. They're either super niche or super like elitist. They didn't do a good job of offering competition to the public schools. So if you had a boarding slash private school that was pretty much like a public school, but was allowed to kind of do their own thing, kind of have semi-autonomy while also being funded to kickstart by the local government that would allow it to give financial and merit-based scholarships, I think that would do wonders for the students as they would have an option to go to a potentially better school if they think like it fits their needs. And it would pretty much tell the public schools, hey, you can't be sitting on your ass anymore. You got to step it up. If the homeless population was growing out of control, would you expand public housing and work to grow their access to basic needs? So the public housing we have here is ran so poorly. It's neglected and it's really used just kind of as a political prop. It's like, oh, we're signing this bill to put it up. And now these people are here, they don't care. So I honestly, for public housing, I would take the politics out of it and have a um, pragmatic and caring oversight board, not of elected officials, but of the top um, technocrats in housing and in homelessness that run it. Because I, of the private and public sector, I would trust that. I think that's what we have to do a lot more for a lot of other issues. Instead of having, look, if I'm an elected official, I could put some legislation through, but I don't know the best. There's people out there that know better than me. The whole point of a team and policy is to put the best people in place to do the best job. So I would be like, okay, let's have a research committee. Let's find the best people in Fairfax to deal with this issue. Give them oversight of public housing. That's what we need to do to have real solutions. I also think... This ties back, this is the little surprise I said earlier for helping people with college, offering a quote-unquote freedom dividend, a universal basic income, right below the mean poverty line, and whatever municipality I was a part of. So, you know, it differs. It differs based on where you're at, but right below the poverty line will allow your local economy to be a trickle-up economy, and it would help out um, your people that live in your, in, your, in your system. You would have, you'd allow people to um, use capitalism at its root core, which is to allow people to take risks and make investments, not just struggling to make a means ends. You would allow people to have their ideas and creativity flourish and to add culture and, and great new ideas into your city. You know, it's, it's a really great way to have a pragmatic safety net. Um, also having more career pathway institutions and systems not ran by the public sector, not ran by the private sector, ran by a conglomerate of both. And once again, it depends on how the how bad the homelessness issue is. Like, 
Um, in San Francisco, man, that's just, it's impossible, right? If you, where I am, I would say expanding public housing by a little bit, but also doing the freedom dividend. It depends on where you're at, but in currently in Fairfax, I would say universal basic income um, and then the pragmatic techno technocrat pseudo type of um, housing, public housing board and a, um, what's that thing I said? And then career pathway board, if that makes sense. And can you go a little deeper into why you would just set the uni universal basic income just below the poverty line? Mm -hmm. So this is actually, um, we did a study on this, my best friend for our AP econ class back when Andrew Angus went for president. He wanted to make it $1,000 a month. That'd be 12,000 a year. And the mean poverty line in America was 12.4K a year at that time. The goal, this is what Alaska does too with their oil checks, right? The goal is to have a safety net just enough so people still want to invest to maybe um, buy some stocks or maybe take a loan for education or to start up a business. Some things that may fail, but you know you have the safety net. You can do it now. The goal is to have that while not having so much assistance that people become complacent and they don't want to take those risks. It allows capitalism to work at its most um, at its best form, which is with minimal um, social and economic errors. You have to do it just right, because if you do it too much, you're gonna have too much of a safety net and that's gonna lead to, to, to a lot of bad things. It's gonna lead to people not wanting to take risks, it's gonna lead to people not wanting to, to go work or to open up a job, right? Who blames them? If you're getting more money, why would I wanna do that? But that's not good for your, for your local government whatsoever because local governments also, they depend on funds from the state government and state government only gives funds to the best, you know what I'm saying? If you're the worst city, they're not going to give you that much funding. That's just how it works. Um, and if you do it too low, well, then it's kind of pointless. If you give people only like a hundred dollars, you know, it is kind of pointless. I mean, sure. Thanks a lot. That doesn't really help a lot. So what you do is you take the money from, because you don't want to cost too much inflation. Either. You take the money from current inefficient and ineffective programs that just really aren't working, give it to everybody in the most liquid form and allow them to do whatever they want. If they want to save that money, that's what these people want to do and have to do. They can do it. If these people, if you're really rich, you donate a lot of money, you're probably going to send it back down anyway in a donation or open up an organization that helps out with whatever you want to help out with. You know, if you're like a middle class, you can use that money to maybe pay off college debt. That's what I think is the best way. You have to find the right balance. And that is a little below the poverty line. And once again, that, that, that definitely differs based on the municipality. And you have to have the means to do it. Some towns just don't have enough money to do that. It's impossible. So it only works. Like, I feel like it would work where I, where I live. But um, yeah, that's pretty much why you do it right below the poverty line in simple terms about all these graphs and everything. So I heard you talking briefly about... Um, people not going back to work um, mm -hmm. because they get too much. Mm -hmm. Say that the the minimum wage that they're living on in that workforce, because I know we have had this issue currently with uh, COVID-19 mm -hmm. uh, payments, basically, mm -hmm. um, are out, are they're getting more money than they would have mm -hmm. if they're working in a low paying job. So to combat that, they were saying, raise the minimum wage would you support that kind of legislation to raise the minimum wage it's a it so actually fun fact student government i got to work on a 32 bj seiu union uh, in negotiating and one of the things is we want to be very careful raising the wage because if you raise it too much simple economics you will get people fired the whole point of saving people's jobs and their work is to 
is to not have them be on the streets jobless. If you raise it too much, the company is going to say, okay, well, you, 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 you're done. You're fired. Goodbye. You want to have it just enough so that the company keeps the people. And that's really, that's a really hard game. And it's better to raise it a little bit and not pass the threshold of where people get fired and to overshoot, right? Because you want people to keep their job. But another way to offset that is to add more benefits or, or you raise the minimum wage a little bit and add a UBI. So let's say the minimum wage is $10 an hour. Okay, let's say, let's keep the map very simple. If you work one hour a week, you get paid $10 a week. You raise the minimum wage to 15 an hour, you have a 50 50 chance of getting fired. You either make $0 a week or make $15 a week. If you get paid $10 and you add a universal basic income of $10 a week, let's say it's like $100 so days, but it divides out to $10 a week. You end up making $20 because you get that check from the government while also still working and you don't have the risk of being fired. It's pretty much like game theory, if that makes sense. So I'm for um, keeping the minimum wage the same if you add benefits such as a UBI or anything else, any other ideas that come up for your local municipality. Raising the minimum wage, it's a very risky game. It, it's, it's necessary if you don't have the other benefits coming, but it's very risky because your number one goal, this is coming from like protecting the workers point of view is you don't want people fired and companies. That's just how they are. They view things through numbers solely and they will fire people if it's raised too much. So that's why you kind of have to find that sweet spot, but that's why I'm more for raising a little bit, but adding much more benefits. That's what we did for our workers at Mason. We added a lot more benefit. We added seniority, immigration protection. We had bonus raises. We had, we gave them free parking that saved them money, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you end up, end up with the same amount of um, positives without the risk of being fired. It's a very risky thing. And it's just, you'd rather, as I said, you'd rather undershoot than overshoot because you don't want people to get fired or left on the streets. Do you think money should have influence in politics and have direct influence on public policy? No, but it does. There's no way we're going to, simple answer is we have a crony capitalist market right now. We have pretty much everywhere you go is oligopolies, oligopolies and monopolies, right? And you need someone, a trust buster to go in and kick some ass like Teddy Roosevelt, but no one's going to really do that because they're all paid by the people unless you're super rich, but then you have rich people helping out the friends. It's really rough. That's why you got to start down up. The only way you can really have power is down up. And even that's starting to become less and less, you know, a lot more parties and, and big donors are focusing on local elections because they realize how powerful they are. So that's why you, we got to start now or it's going to be too late. But the quick answer, no, but what are you going to do? You can't take down a whole system if that makes sense, unless you have everyone behind you, but then there's blah, blah, blah. It's, you got to work within. You got to take something down and to change it. You have to work within, stay true to yourself. And then once you reach the top, take it down with people from the bottom helping you out. That's how you take stuff down. The problem is once people get to the top, they like it at the top. And they don't want to change it. That happens 99.99% of the times. And how do we combat uh, money in politics? And how, how do you think we can get rid of it? There's really no quick way to get rid of money. I mean, these people, these lobbying groups and individual lobbyists are so entrenched. I, or I assume we're talking federal because that's where most money is, right? They're and so entrenched. And look, they're so entrenched with um, statewide elections, national elections that me and you can't just be like, hey, y'all need to stop. They're going to laugh at us. They're so much more powerful than us. They're more, they're more powerful than me, you, and all our friends and connections combined. 
even putting laws through, it's going to be really hard because it may seem good on paper. And a lot of politicians promise. I remember Elizabeth Warren promised she wouldn't use a super PAC or a PAC, one of those, and she used it, right? Because you have to. That's how the game is, unless local elections. Local elections, most of them, they're more kind of, you know, you get some of your friends to help you out. Not like friends isn't like, oh, these lobbyist friends. No, you get your like, you know, you, I donate to you, Seamus. I donate, I donate 10 bucks to you. You get some people to go campaign for you and you're in. And that's how it should work. And if you keep doing that and you expand it from the bottom, the top will have less power. And then, as I said, you move your way up. You have the bottoms. Um, if it's like a triangle, you have the bottom taken care of. And you just got to hope someone wants to, some people wants to make it to the top. They stay true to their word. And then that's how you win. But that's very hard. And that a lot of people are going to fall victim. It's tempting. It's very tempting. And it's not easy on people. But that's just how the way things are. That's the only way to change it. And it's going to take one hell of a person to do that. Can you give me some examples of the shortfalls of small localized governments? Sure. I mean, the obvious answer is lack of resources and lack of size, right? To do things, you need resources. But some local, like if you're like me and my friend were backpacking and we got lost and we ended up in a unorganized community, not even a town with nothing, nothing but moonshine and really interesting people that ended up we ended up hitchhiking with to save us um they're not going to have the resources to do universal health care or ubi they're going to be like what the hell you know what i'm saying like the, a lot because a lot of them differ a lot of the times you have the lack of resources to get stuff done to be able to be creative um and as i said earlier a lot of local governments are more closed off and more corrupt than the national government and that's very surprising but that's because the national government receives so much spotlight that scandals nowadays with social media they get undone pretty well right they get uncovered pretty even back like in the nixon days but this same stuff's happening with your mayor your city council etc and etc and no one's going to cover that no one's going to care right you you got it's a lot more closed door because it's a lot more small it's a lot less limelight where i live a lot of the business gets done in the basement of one of the local restaurants. They do it before the recordings. I, I actually asked one of the people in the local government, why do they always agree and vote unanimously? And they laughed at me. They're like, because they already made their minds up. They already discussed this. See, you already realize that. And because most people don't even pay attention to the local governments, you have the opportunity for nefarious actors to be much more in the shadows. That's another really big shortfall. And another one is you can easily become, you know, the, the, the uh, economic dependency theory, the global one, right? Um, where pretty much you become dependent on other nations. Well, the same thing happens to localities. You can become so dependent on your state government to fund you that you will do anything to appease them. And you pretty much become their pawn because of the way our, our system, how it works pretty much right now, which, you know, it should, this should work. The states get to decide where they give the money, but because the states have our political and political actions are in nature inefficient, not always the best, you know, you could, one could even say immoral is that very easily you can fall on the dependency trap because you got to appease the state government to get the funding that you need to get stuff done. And that's, you have to kind of align with their agenda, especially if the state government is heavily one party it's really hard to have local governments that, that, that act independent. So those are the three, I would say, big shortfalls of local government. How can we get more youth involved in local government and advocacy? Just awareness, just spreading awareness. 
like the, like what we talked about today, talking to people, telling your friends, hey, look, you know, um, we can have a lot of power, have a lot of sway and help people out by getting involved by, by going and, and reaching out to these people. It's all about awareness and not like some big corporate term like, oh, we need awareness. No, just telling people, just talking about it, having conversations, realizing, oh, man, this is where a lot of the stuff happens. This is where the name of the game is. I got to get out and, and do stuff with this. Awareness in a legit organic sense is key. And also realizing that this shit isn't fun. It's not cute. It's boring. It's not pretty. But that's how you make real changes by sucking it up and fighting through that. And realizing it's not all sunshine and rainbows. This stuff, man, some of this stuff, man, it's like, oh my God, you're talking for six hours about a stoplight. It's like, come on. But that has a lot of change. Traffic is a big issue. And you realize, you know, a lot of stuff, a lot of important stuff, like it seems pointless, but it does have a point. And if you just realize that's, our generation, especially, we're extremely superficial and we are very like hyper quick focus. We only like boom, 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 you know? So it's going to take a lot of strength, a lot of guts to sit through boring stuff for five hours and paying attention. But that's what you got to do to make real change. And I feel like a lot of us, once you realize that, we'll stick, we'll stick it up and we'll, we'll stay strong and just keep going through it. Is there anything I missed that you'd like to bring up before we close up? Nothing you missed, but I would just say to everybody listening, first off, I hope you're staying safe and well with your family. You know, these last couple of years have been hard. Um, shout out to Seamus. Great podcast. Great member of the Conversationalist. Shout out to the Conversationalist. Add me on Instagram at RansomFoxDC. And last but not least, please, after listening to all this, get involved with your local government. There's a lot of fun stuff too. Like we, I got to represent my school. Are we at a huge parade? throughout the city. And I got to represent George Mason and stand on the parade away wave the people and throw candy. It's so fun. We also had the thing with the Easter bunny giving out candy to little kids. That's great. You have all these opportunities that nobody knows about, which makes it easier for you to do it. You know, I'm not Mr. Um, I'm not some superstar, it's a regular guy, but I have these opportunities because you just go out and do it. So please research and get involved with your local government. Tell your friends. And I hope you like this podcast, but Get involved with your local government. It's going to help you, your friends, and your family, and your neighbors out a lot. And you'll be better for it. Thank you so much uh, for everything. Ransom. Oh, thank you. Great to have you. Thank you again, everyone, for listening to the podcast. And a big thank you to Ransom for everything. And like he said, make sure to get involved with your local government. Instead of donating this time, please, please, please get involved in any local organizations and anything that you're passionate about. And as always, feedback is appreciated, where you can reach me at my Instagram at couchpotatopolitics or my email at couchpotatopoliticspodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on all those social media as well, and the Spotify. Have a great one, everyone, and thank you again for listening.